Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. It's been almost a month since Twitter banned Donald Trump, and somehow we've survived. After all, there are plenty of things on social media to amuse and outrage us, from the hilarious comedy stylings of Seth Rogen to the bumbling antics of that clueless 15-minute sensation who used his dog's shampoo and then kvetched about it. But while Trump's account and his presidency are history, he's left behind serious questions about social media governance and oligopolistic control of the digital commons. In another age, you could get your word out by going to the park and mounting a soapbox. But no one goes to parks to hear people make speeches anymore. And so what happens when a small group of Silicon Valley billionaires control all the virtual soapboxes? This month, we're devoting two podcast episodes to this question with a focus in each on getting inside the head of the people who actually run social media companies. We love to complain about these people, especially Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter's Jack Dorsey, but the questions they're facing aren't easy, and they have big problems of their own, from woke internal staff revolts to the possibility of new legislation in Western countries and the reality of state media control in authoritarian parts of the world. Next week, you'll hear me talking to a former Facebook executive who's starting his own social media network, and so now has the opportunity to work through these issues from scratch. But this week, I'll be talking to Bill Ottman, the CEO of an established social network, Minds.com, which now has close to 3 million users. By the standards of Facebook or Twitter, that's small, of course, but it's big enough that it's forced Ottman to address these issues in a serious way. Issues like extremism, content control, and the important, though obscure-sounding, issue of algorithmic transparency, not to mention Section 230 of the U.S. Communications Decency Act. We also talked about the possibility of using antitrust law to bring the big social media companies to heel, something that was the subject of a recent Quillette editorial. So here's my interview with Bill Ottman, CEO and co-founder of Minds.com, who spoke to me earlier this week from his office in New York. Did you expect that Trump would eventually get banned from Twitter? They had certainly been talking about it for a while. And we know that all of the big networks were getting an immense amount of pressure. Having said that, I honestly didn't expect it. Twitter somehow survived the Trump era. What was weird is it was like, what, two weeks before he was actually leaving office. If you're a free speech purist, you'd say, look, Twitter did the right thing for 99% of Trump's tenure, and then to kind of just give up at the end. You're somebody who, who manages your own admittedly smaller social network, but some people say that it was some kind of staff revolt that took place. What's your speculation on, on what actually caused this? There have been some pretty extensive pieces about kind of the internal free speech wars happening at Twitter. They were a company whose original slogan was the free speech wing of the free speech party. 
which they abandoned in a very obvious way. Yeah, certainly internal battles, PR battles. And I think that what we're noticing happening is sort of a a changing of the line of what constitutes incitement. I think that there is an argument in place that a large portion of the population accepting that this was sort of a, a form of incitement. But if you look to like Supreme Court precedent, I don't think that it would fall into that category. So we had a guest on the show who has an interesting perspective because there's somebody who has a sort of libertarian free speech perspective. But part of a libertarian perspective is that corporations have the right to make their own decisions and that corporations do not have to respect mm -hmm. the constitutional standard of free speech that you would have to observe if you were, for instance, a government agency or a public university. One other problem that we face conceptually is that in terms of the operation of the free market, a lot of the people who have left Twitter, either voluntarily or because they were banned from Twitter, they tended to be disproportionately people who had extreme views, and in many cases, right-wing views. So if, if you get thrown off Twitter, doesn't necessarily mean you're a right-wing extremist, but it doesn't hurt, right? So a lot of those people went to places like Parler, which has now been shut down, and Gab. If you're an entrepreneur in this space, you've either set up your own network or you're setting up your network, how do you avoid this problem that the people who are most likely to get thrown off Facebook and Twitter and other established networks are disproportionately likely to be people who don't have a lot of value to add to the public discussion, either because they're dealing in, in full-on hate speech. You seem to have avoided that at Minds. Well, we've put deep effort into depolarizing the conversation as, as much as we can. And, you know, from a corporate tone, we have stayed as neutral as possible. And Parler and Gab just simply didn't do that. I was getting emails from Parler during the election fraud allegation period where like it was like said stop the steal in the headline of the email that I got from Parler. Gab at one point, this is a couple of months ago, Gab sent me an email because I was on their mailing list. It's like an open letter. It said, Dear President Trump, if you want to leave Twitter and jump on Gab, we have your Gab handle ready for you. And it was like Trump on Gab. It was kind of like a press release that was pro-Trump. Exactly. And look, I think that they absolutely have the right to do that. And, you know, that is sort of a ride the divide type strategy, which works pretty well. If you want to achieve network effects, playing on that polarization is, is a very effective strategy. It's just not something that we've been willing to do, because from a long term sustainability point of view, I don't think it makes sense. It's not. It's also just not who who we are. Um, we have a pretty large progressive base. When we started growing at Mines, it was largely progressives pro privacy in reaction to a lot of the NSA surveillance scandals around Snowden and all that back in back in like 2015. Just to draw back on what you said about Twitter's right to to do what they did. I, yeah, they do. They do have that right. That's what 230 provides. There's sort of a lot of misunderstanding about Section 230. People think that it sort of mandates constitutionality or neutrality. If I could, if I could interrupt you, just because a lot of our listeners are not in the United States, could you just describe what you mean by the legislative reference to Section 230? Sure. So, you know, Section 230 gives platforms basically shield 
from liability around user-generated content. This would apply to the comment section on a news publication. So actually, news publications are protected by 230 in the comments section. And platforms, net, social networks, and, and other digital inter- intermediaries who have user-generated content, it's, it protects from, from that content, but it also doesn't mandate that the platforms have like you know First Amendment-based policy, which is what we have at, at Minds.com. That that would be like saying if there was a phishing app, then like they would have to allow pornography or something, which doesn't really make sense. I I do think that there is value to having the conversation about whether or not it would be wise for big tech platforms to have more of a First Amendment approach, considering that they have become the public commons. But I'm not of the opinion that they should be forced necessarily. Your reference to Snowden is interesting because if you go back just a few years, you had a lot of people on the progressive left who themselves were deeply skeptical of any kind of content-based surveillance Mm -hmm. or control of what they were doing. Now, they were primarily focused on the evils of big government, which is itself kind of another irony. It's kind, of, it's kind of unusual that the progressive left is just fine with Twitter censoring your content, but when it comes to the government doing it, no. That's something for the private corporations to do. So there's all kinds of strange political bedfellows that this whole thing has generated. What's interesting about Minds is from the start, it's had this, it's had this very wonky aspect. There's a sort of uh, cryptocurrency subculture there. You can get paid for your content because of the, those aspects it seems to me it always has attracted a, a sort of a highly educated, intellectually engaged clientele. I'm wondering the effects of that culturally, because in the highly libertarian right, people who are Bitcoin fanatics and want to get away from government fiat currency, you do get some like hard right wing people, but you also get people on the Silicon Valley left mm. who see Bitcoin as like kind of you know liberating people and getting rid of banks and stuff like that. You have a very interesting intellectual stew going on in minds. I'm wondering how how the ingredients changed during the Trump presidency. Yeah, I I agree. I think that we have fostered a a pretty intellectual crowd overall. However, that being said, you know, there is a small percentage of the more hard right, hard left even. But what we notice is that anti-authoritarian factions of the left and the right actually have both been targeted on big tech. And I also think we've seen sort of a fracturing of the progressive left where, you know, you have people like Glenn Greenwald, Jimmy Dore, Lee Camp, Abby Martin, these types of people who who do believe in free speech, like, you know, in a pretty pure sense. And they're sort of not on this deplatforming bandwagon. And then you have another group on the on the progressive left, which is not having that opinion. And, and they do think that there's effective deplatforming. So based on the the scholarly work that has been done around the impacts of censorship on major platforms. It is just a reality that when you ban people from the big platforms, and if those are mostly far right, then yeah, you're going to see mostly far right popping up on the alternative networks. That's that's just a 
basic network effect. I mean, I can cite a few studies. Um, there's one out of Nature. I'll just read a quick quote. Our mathematical model predicts that policing within a single platform such as Facebook can make matters worse and will eventually generate global dark pools in which online hate will flourish. And then there's another out of uh, University of Greenwich um, titled Net Censorship in Times of Political Unrest Results in More Violent Uprisings. So I think that we know that radicalization can occur on social networks because people go through these sort of echo chamber rabbit holes and, you know, are recommended things and, and they keep kind of going down a certain path. But guess what? We also know that if you ban the people, then they're going to think they're victims and they're probably going to further radicalize. If you ban them, you also have zero chance at de-radicalizing them because now suddenly the communication has been cut off. And what we're doing at Minds is trying to have a long-term open data study, voluntarily provided data by participants, where we're going to prove, I'm confident, that on like a 10-year basis, we're going to have a higher rate of de-radicalization than on Facebook and Twitter. I actually just debated somebody at the Facebook Oversight Committee on this, and I just don't see how they will possibly be able to, to win that because they aren't enabling the possibility of de-radicalization. And now a message from Blinkist the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling non-fiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast. But life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. Well, isn't engagement and de-radicalization at cross-purposes? Because often people are most heavily engaged in silos that give them confirmation bias? Well, yes. But if you give people who are in an echo chamber on a passageway into a chat room with people who want to participate in positive interve intervention and people who actually 
are on the platform for the purpose of engaging somebody who's not necessarily like a, a political extremist. Maybe they're just someone different from them. And there, there's some really interesting organizations that um, Jonathan Haidt works with, one that we've been working with called Braver Angels, an organization which specifically facilitates uh, conversations with people on the left and the right. I mean, at this point in the state of discourse, simple Republicans and Democrats consider each other extremists. It's it's not it's not just a matter of the far left thinking the far right is extreme. It's your normal everyday Democrat thinking that the normal everyday Republican is literally a terrorist. Well, and before that, you had everyday Republicans calling everyday Obama voters communists. Absolutely. Which is equally ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of this with user experience design that we're working on, we're, we're trying to completely reframe the engagement flow. So if you can enter into an app with the goal of potentially having like a civil conversation with someone on the other side of the spectrum, that is a totally different frame for having an experience with an app as opposed to entering the app and being like, okay, I'm going to find all the things that I agree with. And then, you know, rant and rave against the people that I disagree with. Actually, the point of what you're doing is trying to connect with someone from the other side. That is something that I think is really interesting because it, it resets your brain when you're going into it. And I think that, it, you know, whether you're doing it in real world or digitally, it's like if you go into a conversation and you want a steel man, for anyone who doesn't know, it's when you, you know, try to represent the best version of the other side's argument. You know, I find that if I forget to steel man in a debate that I'm in, whether a family member or a friend or whatever, it'll go off the rails way more easily. So it's like having a clear framework for, you know, what is our, our actual project here, I think could could do wonders. You know, it's not going to be a, a total panacea, but... It could help. It's interesting how little cues can can help civilized discourse. Twitter actually installed a, a, an interesting feature whereby when you're replying to somebody, it reminds you of all the common people you follow. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, you might be about to slam someone and you're like, oh, well, we both follow, you know, my uncle or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. maybe I'll run into this guy. So <laughs> maybe I'll be more civil. <laughs> Let me just ask about the ge- geographical aspect, because I remember I was following the progress of mines, and I remember there was one point a year or two ago when, like, all of a sudden, like, I don't know, 50,000 people in Vietnam joined mines suddenly. Yep. And I'm not sure why or the context of that, but does geography matter for social media networks? I, I know that, I think I spoke to someone who said, like, at the time, Friendster was still around, but it was, like, popular in Philippines or something. Or is, or is are you targeting socioeconomic groups and obviously language groups, because you know, language is still, still a thing. Or does geography still matter when you're creating social media networks? Well, it definitely matters for who we target. I mean, you know, we're a mostly English and Spanish-speaking staff. And so you know, our ability to properly support a large community in you know, every language is, is somewhat limited. We, we have uh, opened up our internationalization, localization, uh, translation tools so that community members can like help translate the app into 
any language and we can rapidly deploy that. And so with the Vietnam instance and actually also Thailand in June, we had about a quarter million uh, Thai citizens sign up. In both cases were reactions to government surveillance and censorship in those companies sort of in collaboration with big tech. So in the in the instance of Vietnam, it was revolving door between Facebook and the Vietnamese government. Uh, in the Thai case, it was uh, the same with Twitter. And so we had some really popular journalists and influencers in both of those countries sign up and, you know, they brought these huge waves of of, of users the, in the Thai community who's still quite active on mines. And so, you know, that that's a sort of beautiful thing to me because that's why we exist. Um, and it's the, the perspective of the Thai community to what everything that's going on in the U S is, is pretty interesting. And, you know, citizens from any authoritarian state, you know, they, they look at what's going on in the U S in a very different way. You know, for them, it's the government censoring them. And, uh, in the U S it's the corporations that are censoring the people. And so they see all these calls for censorship in, in the U S and they're kind of like, what are you people doing? I mean, like how how are the liberals calling for censor? Like, don't you understand like the the type of environment that this could bring in? And so it, it it's sort of refreshing to have the international vibe and and audience. But we have been working full time to prevent against this corporate censorship. Uh, you know, Amazon they pulled out of their contract with with Parler, and when the cloud providers start getting into this game that that is another level of of scary because the, you know that's much more foundational and so we've bu we've built out a multi-cloud clustering situation where we're we're basically not dependent on any one cloud and we actually exist in multiple clouds and including one particular who I, I can't say their name, they, they stay under the radar on purpose, but they're very pro civil liberties and they're very big in the US, but most people don't know who they are. And, you know, they do that intentionally. We do use Amazon for some stuff, but we're not dependent on them. And I think that Parler might have cut corners with their infrastructure. Clearly, that's why they've been down for like over a week at this point. And I think, you know, they're saying that might be a couple more weeks. And so they, they were not resilient from like a infrastructure perspective, certainly not decentralized. And so we've been working on different decentralized components of the app from identity to storage to infrastructure. And uh, I know that, you know, you and I had had some conversations about decentralized identity before. Yeah, I, that's interesting what you say about having a, a multi-cloud based approach, uh, not putting your eggs in one basket. You've, you've kind of interneted the internet. Let me talk to you about the size of these organizations, because one of the themes that emerged from the other interview we had is that as Facebook, it, Facebook in particular was our case study, as you've gotten more and more services, you know, like you go to Facebook now and it's, it's everything, right? It's video and it's audio and it's groups and, and that takes thousands and thousands of new staff at Menlo Park to, to supervise all this stuff or at least build it out. And then the more staff you have the less trust and congeniality you have within the organization and um, the more people you have to recruit and it becomes a company of strangers as opposed to a small team of builders. And that creates its own problems. 
And one of the things that we talked about was there's an advantage to keeping your social media network not small in terms of the user base, but small in terms of the number of things that you're dedicated to doing well. And you're not going to try and be all things to all people because then you turn yourself into like a gigantic corporation with all the problems that has. Is that something that you think about at Minds? No matter how big we get, I just, I don't want my team to be larger than X. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, because people compare us to Facebook and Twitter and the others, we have this burden on our shoulders of sort of being pinned next to them. And people have this expectation of parity of features. And so we're absolutely trying to stay focused on what we have now. We already have a lot. I mean, we have video, we have payments, we have news feeds, we have groups. And any one of the features of our app could be a whole company in itself or a whole startup. And so so we already have a lot. So, so the answer is yes, we're trying to stay focused and at the same time deal with that expectation that people have because a, a big tech social networking competitor has to be competitive functionally. In terms of team size, I wouldn't say that we're against a much larger team in, uh, in, of, uh, in and of itself, but we have had a larger team at certain points in our history than we, than we even do now. And we were actually less productive during some of those times. And, you know, managing a huge team is very difficult. And, you know, also the fact that we're open source means that we, we do have a, a number of community developers who just volunteer their, their programming time. And, you know, so we're also supporting that community and, you know, educating them and, and, and working with them. And so I think that we have no choice but to scale the team and, and scale the open source community. There's no way that we'll be able to compete if we can't, but we need to do so in a way that doesn't, like you were mentioning, kind of alienate the people who, who are involved. So it, it, it's a juggling act. And now a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin, I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills and received in return a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash T E. And now, back to our podcast. 
when you first heard the news that that Trump was banned, was your first reaction awesome? This is an opportunity to gain more share for mines, or oh crap, here come thousands of people who are going to get banned, or who simply abandoned Twitter because their hero is off Twitter, and now it's going to become my problem to moderate what they say. Both. I mean, I I I wasn't excited. You know, I I think to be excited that the president of the United States was banned from, you know, one of the largest social networks in the United States. I mean, even (laughs) if you supported it, I still don't think that you should support the idea of it. Even Dorsey came out and said that, you know, it's not something that I'm happy about, which was sort of the bare minimum of what he could say. And then I think I saw a video that got leaked of him internally sort of, being very scary in his comments about how, you know, this censorship campaign is not going to end. And in fact, it's going to accelerate. But we always clearly watch the network effects take place when something like this happens. I mean, we've been having record numbers the last week and, you know, huge growth. And so, so, okay, yeah, this is sort of why we exist. And we see that, migration happening in real time. You know, this time around, to be honest, it's been a lot of of centrists sort of just freaked out by by what's happening. But, you know, th- there is also a percentage of of the people who are just trying to create another right wing echo chamber. And, you know, hopefully we can be there to carry on a discourse where they can experience something different from from what they're seeing on Parler and Gab. It's it's not that easy. And I don't think that you can necessarily go into it with the attitude that like, look, I'm trying to like change people's minds. I mean, even Daryl Davis, our advisor who has de-radicalized hundreds of members of the KKK, he says that his strategy whenever he's befriending an extremist is to to not try to convince them and to just be there to listen for a period of time and to just be a sounding board, let them get it out of their system. And then he says time after time, he'll notice that they finally ask him a question. It's, it's always, you know, in the beginning, it's just sort of this narcissistic vomit. And then finally, like, and he's been, you know, he's such a good listener that, that, that they want to know something about him. And that's when transformative process really, really begins. And so having this agenda of like perfect unity is is all great and sure we we want to build tools that can help facilitate that but i don't think that you can kind of go into it with this like social engineering attitude we had an editorial at quillette the other day about using tools that have been around since the age of the robber barons to trim monopoly or oligopoly powers that you see at some of the big tech giants do you think that could be useful traditional antitrust Say we're talking about Google and you want to break up search from YouTube, from X, Y, and Z. You know, in in the past, that may have been effective. But, but now that we're dealing with anti-competitiveness in the algorithms, you know, the conjecture, and, you know, we've heard this from, you know, mostly conservatives, but also some anti-establishment people on the left that that there is there are algorithms in place that are punishing certain voices or certain competitors. So what we're talking about is in search rankings, 
in newsfeed discoverability, in you know prioritization, and what's showing up in your newsfeed, in app store rankings. You know, every feed that you're seeing on any of these apps are are dictated by by algorithms with thousands of different variables, none of which we have any access to. And so if you chop the head off search and make it a different company from Gmail, it's not getting at the root of the problem. And the root is the transparency and the access to the source code, which is facilitating the winners and losers of this big social game that we're playing. We need to be talking about transparency in source code and algorithms. Otherwise, you're not going to get the intended effect from government regulation. If you have a, a monopoly or dominant oligopoly position in, in search and you leverage that to direct people toward your other services, it's analogous to you know going back to the browser wars. If you have an operating system monopoly, you load up an OS on a computer and then you then leverage that to direct people toward your web browser. It was ancient history now, but it's analogous to that, yes? Yeah. And I mean, we didn't have social networks, you know, back when Microsoft got broken up and it's, it's just a totally different game now. And so I, I do think that diversity in the market is really important and we need to be encouraging that. And, you know, like DuckDuckGo, for instance, which is really the only other search competitor that does have a, a privacy focus. You know, there's certain things that you can search for on Minds that come to the top on DuckDuckGo, but you try to search the exact same thing on Google and we're nowhere to be found. In regard to Minds algorithms, as I understand it, are your algorithms transparent? 100% of our source code is transparent, including all of our algorithms for everything. So all, if you go to just developers.minds.com, all of our documentation and source code is, is available there. And, and, and that is, is at the core of what we need from the next wave of social media networks. You know, we're, we're not trying to dominate the, the market. We, you know, anyone can actually take all of our code and start their own social network with our code and completely reskin it or, you know, add features or, or anything. So we encourage competition. You know, people can take our whole stack and set up their own app with our code. And there actually, there are some companies doing that. But what about the actual question of the government bringing some kind of blockbuster antitrust case against some of these big companies? You know, we actually have been contacted by the government about this very topic. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And we've talked to some, some very, I, I can't say exactly who, but on some calls, a dozen lawyers asking us about our experiences with these companies. I mean, we were suspended from Google Play for about six months. Our, our links were blocked on Facebook. Why? Facebook was blocking our links in Messenger. And anytime you tried to post a link to Minds, it would give like a warning that you had to do a CAPTCHA. And it would say that like this is potentially unsafe. That does seem troubling because there's lots of unsafe stuff on the web. I wouldn't put Minds in that category. Of course. I, and I don't even know what exactly they mean by unsafe. It's like, are you talking about the content? Are you talking about the security? If you're talking about the security, it's like, well, we've never been hacked. I'm pretty sure you have a number of times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or you voluntarily compromised your user's data. We finally contacted a friend of a friend who worked there and got it reversed. But massive damage was done. I mean, come on. Anytime someone tried to share our link in Messenger or post our link, they get this scary message. I mean, that has serious impact on our business and growth. Most people would see that and be like, oh, I don't like that. Maybe I shouldn't share Minds links.
So that that was one thing that we sort of had to do some clever networking to to fix. And to be honest, if we didn't find a friend of a friend, I don't think it ever would have happened. There's there was no Facebook appeal process that we could even get to. And now a brief shout out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of, who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. When you say friend of a friend, you're saying you were going through informal tech industry networks in order to get this result. Correct. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we were lucky in that regard, and I, I, I don't even, compl- we don't even know the full story. And then on Google Play, we were suspended for a, I think it was like a, a model and sort of like a half naked model, which was behind a blur because we spent immense energy on an NSFW filtration system so that users, first of all, by default, they're not opted in. They do have the option to opt into it. Google didn't care. And then finally, I realized that Twitter allows full out pornography. Go have fun if you want to search pornography on Twitter. You will be blown away by what you can find on Twitter. And so then I appealed to Google and I was like, how can you ban us for this rather tame? Okay, yeah, it's an explicit, explicit image, but like it's, it's rather tame. When Twitter, who is you know, one of your top apps, has full out pornography. And then they let us back right after I sent that note. And you know that did huge damage. And actually just 48 hours ago, Google gave us another, tw- they gave us a 24 hour warning. So yeah, we're, we're not immune. Like we're dealing with this constantly. We have is- you know, issues with Apple. Google said they sent us some evidence, you know, some comments that were sort of very unclear, not definitive. And they said that, you know, you need to completely change your system. And we actually did some Ninja developer work and we had to rip out a bunch of functionality. Like we had, we had to rip out search on the, on the mobile app and, and comments just so that we don't get kicked out because we have hundreds of thousands of people just on Google play who, if we get banned, you know, we'll lose touch with them. Like we need to make sure that we can at least get all those people to download the app directly from us where all the full functionality exists. But yeah, this is constant. And, you know, even despite the fact that we've been careful in our, in our public tone and our strategy it, it doesn't matter. It's going to be really challenging no matter what. Bill Ottman is co-founder and CEO of Minds.com. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thanks, John. I really enjoyed it. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.